Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we're thankful for the fact that we belong to you, that you have ordained this means of grace in our lives, because you do want to speak to us, and you have a word for us. Thank you that you are a good and kind, faithful, loving shepherd who knows uh, all that's going on in our lives, in our own hearts even now. And so we would just pray that you would uh, give us attention spans beyond even mere human mental capacity, that we would receive what it is that you want to say, and that you would be worshipped even as the rightful taking your rightful place now as the head of the church, giving us direction from your word. So bless our time, we pray, in Christ's name, amen. Last week, we uh, began a study of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn there again. We're going to complete that study this evening. And what we saw last week can really be simply stated as this, true love protects by warning the ones that are loved so as to keep and cultivate a pure and simple devotion to Christ. I titled this Christ's Loving Protective Warning, and tonight is part two. But from that perspective, then, as a believer, a follower of Christ, we receive warnings as a blessing to be welcomed, not an annoyance to be dismissed. They are to be heeded, not ignored, appreciated, not rejected, to be forewarned, is to be forearmed. And those that don't listen are therefore unarmed, and that's a dangerous place to be. Let me illustrate that in our first year of our marriage, prior to having any children, Mandy and I were away on a first anniversary marriage weekend getaway to a mountain cabin. About this, we were married in December, so it was winter time. There was snow around, but everything had melted. It was not fresh snow. The roads were completely clear with a simple warning to just drive cautiously because as snow melts, it freezes again, and you have what is called black ice. Perhaps some of you have experienced that. So to drive carefully. And Mandy, being a little bit newer to California, having been born and raised in the south, Alabama specifically, where there's not that much snow and there's no she had no real driving experience in those kind of conditions, was more than a little nervous, just put it that way. Um, and I assured her, well, I've grown up in this, I've been skiing my whole life, we have a four-wheel drive, Bronco 2, it's not going to be um, a problem, nothing for you to worry about. Needless to say, I didn't take the warning too seriously. Uh, and on the side road to get to the specific place that we were Going to, I rent the, rent, the rental, I rounded a corner, hit some black ice, and we did a very fast 360 right in the middle of the road and came to a complete stop. Now, fortunately, nobody was around, and I'm here today, there's nobody that was hurt, car wasn't hurt, nothing, we didn't hit anything, but uh, I sure took a needless risk. Um, and um, she hasn't forgotten about that. <laughs> um, and I caused some very significant stress. And it all could have been avoided if I acted on the warning that I received. Now, that's true for us spiritually, isn't it? 
in our pursuit of a pure and simple devotion to Christ when we're warned about who we're up against, what it's like in this world, the things that are coming at us in an all-out attack that, like black eyes, that's not often visible or perceptible, but we know it's there, and we can kind of get lulled into um, a sense that there's not really that much danger. Um, And then we face a danger that we should have been prepared for just because we weren't sober-minded and we weren't alert and we were unsuspectingly caught off guard. In love, Paul is trying to prevent that in the lives of these believers and us too. He is forewarning them and thus forearming these believers to keep their focus on cultivating, preserving, even developing further, deepening a pure and simple devotion to Christ. So let's again just look at our text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We're really just looking at one verse, um, but I'll, I'll set the whole context and we'll receive, again, Christ's loving, protective warning. He's just trying to motivate us and these believers here to love Christ supremely. And in this text, what I say it gave as kind of a proposition is we're looking at six reasons why Paul warns these Christians. And he does it for the purpose of protecting them from counterfeit, empty, unfulfilling pursuits. We need that same protection, don't we? And to preserve a lifelong love for and satisfaction in Christ. And that's for us too. So meditating on these six reasons, the Holy Spirit draws us to a settled conviction that we would love this warning because by heeding it, we enjoy a sweeter, more intimate, more heartfelt communion with the Lord Jesus himself. In fact, the level of a groom and his bride, which will one day be consummated, but can nonetheless be experienced really and truly now. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. Let's just read that text. I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles. So let me just quickly review reasons one and two that I gave you last week. The first reason that Paul gives this warning to both protect us from the empty pursuits, the unfulfilling pursuits, the counterfeit pursuits, and instead preserve a lifelong love for Christ is this. Christ sends caring pastors to deliver it. It is important enough for Jesus to commission Paul, to raise up a Paul, to send him in loving, caring, pastoral oversight to deliver this warning. When Paul says here, but I am afraid that, that's where I'm drawing this from, that phrase, he is legitimately afraid. He is not 
a, a, a fearful person. We would say that for sure about him. But he's afraid that they'll be led astray by a deceitful, crafty enemy. And that was the first reason. He had one passion, and that was to present believers, believers as a pure bride to Christ the groom. And if we don't heed this, if we didn't need this warning, then Christ wouldn't send those kind of people into our lives, whether that's pastors who care for us or loving friends that also see us strain. In other words, we should have the type of care and love for one another that we go deliver a warning when it needs to be delivered. And we need that in our lives. And so that was the first reason. The second reason Paul gives for why we need warnings like this is to be sober-minded about the enemy. And I stated it this way. The warning is needed because Satan has a successful historical record. Right? That is the fact here. He says, but I'm afraid that... What's he afraid of? As the serpent deceived Eve. The serpent did deceive Eve. That's a historical fact. And because Satan has a historical track record of success... Uh, of deceiving Eve and many people since then, including us, we know that he's trying to do it again in our lives, and so he gives this warning because he knows Satan has a successful track record. His goal is to destroy your life, to rip you apart, to do anything and everything he can to either dull it, diminish it, prevent it, or at least get it distracted from being a pure and simple devotion to Christ. Any, any, any of those adjectives would be his target. So the serpent's successful track record dates all the way back to our first parents, and that should compel us to cling to Christ all the more. We do not want the serpent to beat us. For those of you who have a competitiveness to you, we take this seriously. And I want to remind you, just want to take a couple of minutes because we don't often do this. I want to remind you about who this cruel enemy is, lest you remain ignorant of him. And we're going to talk a little bit more about his craftiness in a moment. But I just want to highlight some of the ways that the Lord Jesus himself describes your enemy and my enemy. Uh, we dare not not believe in him. We dare not be lulled to the type of thought process that he doesn't exist and that he's not active today because he is. And I, when thinking about this, I recognize Satan doesn't want this message preached. He doesn't. Right now he wants you to pay attention to something else. He doesn't want me to preach this because it unmasks him and it really hacks him off. But it's glorifying to Christ because when we understand who he is, who, who Satan is, and that Christ has overcome him, it glorifies who Jesus is and exalts him all the more. So let me just give you a few of these things that will cause us to cling to Christ because that's the only way we're going to have victory. He's called a serpent here in this text. We're going to look at Genesis 3 in a little bit. But that in Genesis it says... That the, that the serpent was more crafty and more cunning than any other creature, okay? So he's called a serpent. He's also called the devil, which is a diabolical one. He's a slanderer of God, a ruler over evil. That's what that title devil means in Jesus' own temptation. 
He's, that's parallel with being the tempter. If you think about Job's experience, Satan had been very personally active roaming the earth and then went after Job. When God removed his restraining hand, well, all that happened to Job was what Satan did. Satan is enraged that Jesus, as the strong man, bound him, invaded, and stole you and me away from him. That's how angry he is. John 8, 44 says that he is a liar and the father of lies and a murderer. 1 Peter 5, 8 tells us that he is a roaring lion who is seeking someone to devour. Complete annihilation of you is what he's after. Ultimate cruelty. 1 John 4, 4 says that he is the God of this world or the God of this age in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. In other words, that speaks of his control over this world system and his use of the world. Matthew 13, verse 19, and 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, he's called the evil one. In fact, in that same context in the armor of God in Ephesians 6, it's the evil one that's shooting flaming arrows at you. So, you've got a target on you, according to Scripture. There's other titles in, but I just really, I don't want to, Delcy, there's this balance here of not wanting to scare us. We have to look to Christ who is greater, because he is, as we like to say around here, God's little devil. But he's not little. He's ferocious. He's a very evil enemy. And there's not neutrality in this world, and he uses this world to do anything and everything he can to get you as a believer to not have a pure and simple devotion to Christ. This is no child's play. We are in spiritual warfare. So make no mistake about it, you face a real enemy who was out to utterly destroy you as he was out to destroy Jesus himself. The Bible tells us that a disciple, when he's fully trained, what happens? He's going to be like his master. He's going to be treated like his master. So you have that same hostility. That hostility is still at Christ, but in this world where Jesus is no longer incarnate, that hostility is directed towards you and me. Satan's chief characteristics are his hostility, his cunning, his power, and his evil intent toward Christ and his people. He's defeated for sure. Praise God for that. And he's restrained by the hand of omnipotent grace. But when Paul says here, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, don't you dare underestimate the power of your enemy to deceive you. Sober-mindedness, watchfulness, red alert. Whatever we can say about that, don't be naive. And so Paul is afraid. For these people. He wants to betroth them to Christ. And so that's why he gives this warning, is because Satan has had a successful tracker. Now, tonight I want to take up reasons three through six as to why Paul warns these Christians so that we too can also be protected from counterfeit, empty, unfulfilling pursuits and instead preserve lifelong satisfaction in Christ. And then I'm going to conclude 
with six words of just very practical counsel for you tonight, okay? So the third reason is this. The warning is needed not only because God sends caring pastors and friends to deliver it, not only because Satan has a successful track record, but also because Satan is crafty, right? What does the text say? But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, how did he do it? text says, by his craftiness. Go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to look at this a little bit, and we're going to see exactly what he did. If reason number two that I just kind of highlighted is the warning lights of our enemy's power, here Paul notes his methodology. His approach is to be clever and tricky. In other words, he doesn't announce himself. He doesn't say to you, hey, Kevin, here I am, Satan, to attack you. It's not like that. It's not that direct in in this sense. He's a master of disguise. Later in chapter 11, he's going to say that, that it's no wonder that all these false teachers are pretending to be like me, Paul, because even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. The false teacher doesn't come in and say, I'm a false teacher. No, no, he's revealed... And he takes the same approach of whose authority that he's under. So his crafty method is to get us to laugh at sin like the typical sitcom. Or to manipulate us by proposing that our only choice in this difficult scenario is to pick between two evils. And so we have to pick the lesser of two evils. Well, both are evil. The only difference being in degree. See, he's sneaky. He gives us, he does those kinds of things. He makes vigilant effort to infiltrate undetected. That's what this idea of craftiness is. Let's look at Genesis 3, verses 1 to 7, and just make a few observations about his craftiness at work in our first parents for the purpose of us getting equipped to also detect that craftiness. That's what Paul's trying to do. I think it's just interesting. Again, he believes in Genesis chapter 3. He believes in a a talking snake. Takes the Bible literally. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. My first observation, just kind of working our way through this, just notice that up until this point, only God has spoken. And Adam has named animals. The serpent felt and claimed a freedom that he did not have. God had not appointed him as a spokesman. And he felt that he could think independently from God. And challenge then God's authority and his truthfulness just by speaking. He had no right to do that. And he puts a negative in God's mouth right at the beginning. Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. He makes God look bad, right? As if to say, is God the only one who can speak and provide direction? Who does he think he is? Who, who appointed him? Who's, who said that he has a monopoly on the truth? You have a mind and ears, so use them to sort things out for yourself. 
Satan made Eve feel good about herself. We heard about humility and pride this morning. Flattery feeds that. So here we have him basically asserting independence and saying something different. Now look at verses 2 and 3 to further his craftiness. The woman said to the serpent, so she engages in conversation with him. That's mistake number one. Undetected. And the woman said, so the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And notice that what did Eve do here? She omitted the name of the tree. That's a mistake. Her thinking is incomplete then, and so therefore she's not guarded. She should have memorized it word perfect. And then she adds the negative, or touch it. God didn't say you shouldn't touch it. And thus, she buys into Satan's crafty presentation of God as one who is withholding something from her. And also, she doesn't reiterate the warning of the certainty of spiritual death. It's not taken seriously. Instead of saying, you will surely die, she just says, or you will die. Again, the conversation is not going the right direction. Now verse 4. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. So now that he's been undetected and he's been given a hearing, he's emboldened. Satan now directly contradicts God and offers a bold, appealing alternative that suggests that you can interpret reality in a way different from God. I hope you're picking up on some of the craftiness and even thinking about some parallels in our day and age. Verse 5 says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He entices Eve with a lie. And the lie is, go get something you deserve, you need, and you want, but God is refusing to give it to you. Or, even if it's something that God will give you, go get it according to your timing and your terms instead of walking by faith and trusting him. After all, God's provision really isn't enough and his timing isn't really wisest. He has not supplied your complete need and truthfully, he couldn't because really he himself is insufficient. You've got to play this out to think it through. What a crafty, indirect, but nonetheless blasphemous view of Christ. And then verse 6 and 7, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loin coverings. So his crafty method worked, right? That's what Paul's warning about. They acted on their errant thinking provided to them by the crafty serpent. So his method, his craftiness, go back to 2 Corinthians then, his craftiness just to portray truth as incomplete, follow me carefully now, 
to portray truth as incomplete and therefore to contain part error, even if it's only a minor omission, and then be the one who proposes some additional error that is supposedly the missing truth that you need. She was tricked into thinking that she was making a decision to get God's best when in reality she was led into breaking God's law and therefore spiritual death and separation from God. Now the good news is of course the offspring of the serpent will bruise the head of the serpent, right? The good news is that the God-man, Jesus Christ, conquered Satan, won victory over our sin, and now makes it possible for us to detect him and turn from his evil and cruel lies. Lies that he is the father of lies. Satan always entices by promising what he cannot deliver. He only offers counterfeit, empty, unfulfilling pursuits. So if I could go back to our text and say it this way, I believe this is kind of how Paul would give a little bit of it expanded. And when he says that he is afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, it is a warning to say this to us. Anything in your life and anyone in your life who erodes the supremacy of Christ in your heart is working in concert with Satan's strategy, even if unwittingly. Did you get that? Sober up is what we need to do. Be very careful. Satan is a master manipulator. And it's only by clinging to a pure and simple devotion to Christ that we can safely discern his crafty land minds. That's why until you are converted and become a Christian, you're still under his control. Jesus rescues you from him. Transfers you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So this warning alerts us to his methods. We need to be diligent to watch over our hearts and discern specific satanic attacks if we want to preserve a lifelong love for and satisfaction in Christ, namely a pure and simple devotion. So his methods, watch out for his crafty methods. And it really just all starts with a different interpretation, something new, something to be added to what Christ has already given. And that leads to number four. The fourth reason this warning is given is because the battle is in your mind. Look at the text here. The battle is in the mind. It's, it's, your, it's your thought life. It's what you think. Because what you think determines what you believe. What you think ends up affecting what you desire. It all is in the primacy of the mind. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray. So the focus is on the mind. The first line of defense is your mind. And once that line is broken, you are a sitting duck. Cultivate your mind. Precise, accurate thinking about anything and everything is the need of the day. Not fuzzy thinking. Not almost good thinking. Cultivate your mind. The battle is in your mind. 
Many times in Scripture, God calls us to do, calls his people to consider your ways. In other words, McShonehoven, think. Think. Right? We're prone to drift, and I believe that what the Lord is doing here is he's saying, reflect, examine, think about what you're doing. And that's why the Lord, I think, gave us communion. Why? Because we forget him, so he wants us to remember. What is that? That is an exercise of thinking. Remember him and what he has done, who he is, and that he is life itself for you. The battle is in the mind. We're prone to drift and get off what should be our central focus. Earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, part of, again, we destroy these speculations. Our, our war is, is, is not according to the flesh. That's not what our weapons are. What are we supposed to do for all the things that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God? 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5, we are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Wow, every single thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Look, when you become a Christian, the greatest commandment we know is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? When you become a Christian, you get a new mind. You think differently. The part of being born again is you have a completely different mission control center now. Your your mind, ultimately, as a believer, just like everything else of you, is no longer your own. I, I like to think of it this way for myself. I'm not free to give my opinion. I'm not free to just think what I want to think. Bible tells me that if I'm a Christian, I've got the mind of Christ. I, my thinking is supposed to be completely and utterly over the course of my life transformed. One of the glories of heaven is I'm going to have a perfect mind. We have a serious choice to make about the fundamental approach we take to life, and it's this. What do I choose to think about, to meditate upon? Paul is calling for Jesus to be the constant, unpolluted meditation of our minds. Satan wants to pollute your mind and clutter your mind. And he wants to appeal to other aspects of your humanity to get your thinking to be dull, less than sharp, or changed. But our default resting mental position needs to be the truth, especially the truth, centered on the Lord Jesus himself. Romans 12, 2 tells us there's really two alternatives. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. It's either one or the other. You're either conformed to this world or you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. You pick. Paul is saying, look, the, the, the warning is here so important because the battle for a pure and simple devotion to Christ is first and foremost in your mind. Every area of life governed by a search for truth from the scriptures. Knowing the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Knowing the true Jesus of the Bible, not the one of man's own making. 1 John chapter 5, verses 19 to 21, just listen to this. And we know... 
Look at the emphasis on the mind again. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding that we may know him, Jesus, who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now, I get the fact that there can be a cold orthodoxy. And I get the fact that some people can be uh, maybe so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. So I'm going to grant those things. But don't let that excuse you into lazy, sloppy thinking about the things of the Lord and the things of his word. In other words, I've said this before, a warm heart is no excuse for a soft head. Be sharp. Have a sharp mind. Satan would have us crave experiences instead of deeper thinking. Satan would rather we rely on peaceful, subjective feelings instead of objective, revealed promises of Christ. A pure and simple devotion to Christ means that we will have a growing number of beliefs, actions, associations, and plans that have been changed because of specific application of specific texts from the word of Christ. That is Christ's word richly dwelling in us. And we treasure the words of his mouth more than our necessary T-bone steak on Memorial Day barbecue. That's what Job said, more than my necessary food. So only the truth is going to satisfy and protect us. Why? Because the scriptures is where we discover the deepening riches of Christ. When we read texts like that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ, you should want to know every single one of them. We would want to know those, right? That's going to keep us clinging to him. Why would we go anywhere else? A pure and simple devotion to Christ is when we see that truth and we come to that conviction, then it's going to, when we think that way, then we're going to, it's going to grip our hearts. The truth of Jesus protects our mind and gives us the needed discernment to detect our enemy's schemes. So determine, beloved, to win the battle of your mind. As a man thinks within himself, so is he. It's the wisdom from Proverbs. The fifth reason we need this warning to protect us from counterfeit, empty, unfulfilling pursuits and to instead preserve a lifelong love for and satisfaction in Christ is, is this. You are susceptible, even prone, to being led astray. Right? You're susceptible, even prone, to being led astray. The text says this, that your minds will be led astray. That he's afraid that... that that just as the serpent deceived Eve is by his craftiness, that your minds will be led astray. In a word, we're talking about humility. I'm not going to repeat everything that was said this morning about humility, but really it comes down to an accurate self-awareness. We're not yet glorified. We need the Lord's help. There's a remaining principle of sin operative in our lives, and unless we're renewing our hearts and minds daily in Christ and in his word, we also will stray. We are sheep, right? And sheep should only be listening to their shepherd's voice, but sheep stray. So we have that in us. We have external enemies, of course, Satan in this world, but here what Paul's talking about is just the internal issue of your own unredeemed humanity. It's what he's addressing with this 
phrase here. And Paul has given these Corinthians plenty of reassurance throughout the letter. He's told them they're justified. He's told them that they're forgiven. He's told them that they're sanctified. He's told them that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to Christ, imputed to their account. He's told them that they've been cleansed. He's got a lot of reassurance throughout this letter that God will comfort them and so on. He does call them to examine themselves, though, because he does believe that some of them might not be saved. They've got to examine themselves and test themselves to see if they're in the faith. But the reality is, is that any true, honest dealing with your own soul, with my own soul, is going to have to admit that I can be led astray. I'm prone to straying apart from Jesus keeping me. Apart from a pure and simple devotion to him, left to myself, I will stray. And there's illustrations of people being led astray from the purity and simple, simple devotion to Christ, right? You can think of Solomon. Rock solid, built the temple, loved the Lord, had a full renewal of the Davidic commitment. And what happened over time? His unequally yoked, foolish, wise choices of foreign women, the Bible says in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 and 4, led him astray. So don't mistake it. Your choice of friends, your choice of a spouse, your choice of business partnerships, your choice of bad company, your choice of co-workers, your choice of regular diet, of talk radio, whatever it might be, that all can be prone as a useful tool in Satan's hand to lead you astray. Be careful. Peter was led astray by Jerusalem Jewish Christians, and Paul had to confront him in Galatians 2, verses 11 to 14. The third soil in the parable of the soils was one who had led astray by all sorts of other desires. We should adopt the psalmist's words. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. I've read that text many times and I have to fall on my face and ask the Lord's forgiveness and confess because the reality is there's a lot of other things I desire. My desires are not that pure. Desire nothing on earth besides the Lord. That's what Paul's after here. That's the fifth, fifth reason. And here's the sixth and final reason of this warning is by why it's needed is because devotion to Christ can become polluted. In other words, you can start strong, you can have a devotion, you can have a pure and simple devotion, but over time, it can become polluted. These people, Paul had planted this church, he'd written 1 Corinthians to them. Uh, we, we think there's a, probably another letter that was lost that wasn't inspired that was written. There was a long relationship. And then... 2 Corinthians here. Paul had an ongoing long ministry, but he says here that he is concerned, he doesn't want their minds to be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. In other words, what he's after here is to recognize that even the desire to have a pure and, and simple devotion to Christ, it can become polluted. It takes the utmost of commitment Resolve, determination, watchfulness to keep that allegiance focused, pure, and devoted. In fact, the analogy is to be a one husband bride in the context here. What's in view is, is defining our existence as belonging to Christ. In other words, Paul's antidote to everything is just passionately pursue a single-minded love for and satisfaction in Christ alone. And don't allow anyone, anything, any polluting or any corrupting influences to sway you. Now, I'm recognize, I recognize just pastorally, look, we're called to love our enemies, right? Our enemies are, are ultimately, they're our mission field. Because once were we people like that. So we 
in compassion need to reach them, right? But we need also at the same time while carrying out that ministry, not pridefully think that we can let down our guard and that we're not susceptible to the allurement of their fleeting pleasures. We keep both in mind. The words simplicity and purity here in the text, they're not difficult to understand. Simplicity means single-mindedness. Purity means um, uncompromising. The meaning of these words is just understood, again, by this picture of marital faithfulness, a bride who has only one husband, and her eyes are only for him, Jesus. He's the solitary object of her deepest affection and devotion. Nothing in life is done without consideration as to how it will affect her ability to be his wife. That's the picture. He's Verse 2, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband. Look at the text. And so that, Christ, uh, that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. He takes, it takes concentration and focus to keep that from becoming... Polluted. There's more texts that Paul gives in many other letters along these same lines. When we come to Christ, there's a great exchange. We die, and now Christ defines our total existence. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. That is glorious. Just to take that one, just to meditate on that phrase. Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, because he's still alive, it's not a phantom, not a ghost, not a shell. I live by faith in the Son of God, pure and simple devotion to Christ, who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, we follow Jesus Everything is about who Jesus wants me to be. I face this trial as Christ would want me to face it. I think about this relationship the way Christ would want me to think about it. The Corinthian problem that prompted Paul to issue this warning is that they were flirting with a danger of Jesus being less than their object of pure and simple devotion. Look at verse 4. What did they start to bear beautifully? Another Jesus instead of the Jesus of the Bible. Another spirit instead of the Christ-exalted Holy Spirit of of the Bible. Another gospel instead of the life-transforming power of Christ. And all those things they bore beautifully. Again, I just say that the warning is significant because no matter how you started, no matter where you are, no matter how much longer you're going to live, we have to humbly recognize that our devotion to Christ can become polluted. It can become not, not, I didn't say dead. I didn't say extinct. I didn't say obliterated. I said polluted because it can get mixed up with other things and therefore not be simple and pure, single-minded and unpolluted. You might be saying, okay, I get all these six reasons for this warning and I do want Christ to be my all in all. I think he is. I've certainly made that profession. Can you give me some counsel on how to strengthen and revive my own devotion to Christ? Yes, I can, because this is what I need too. So let me give you six pastoral words of counsel. I'm just going to give these to you. They all start with S except for the last one. Um, But this is help 
that I believe is from the scripture that would be what Paul would give us on how do we actually do this now. I want to do it. How do I do it? First would be is study. And what I mean by that is study to know and believe the Christian faith. There is a body of truth outlined in this book that is uniquely Christian, that makes it not Judaism, that makes it truly the new covenant, that makes it truly the Christian faith. Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 4 that we're to have that kind of knowledge because that knowledge is the knowledge of a mature person who then is no longer subject to being tossed like a child here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. It is the knowledge of the faith of the Son of God and the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So study. And I will just say, this means that there's some other things in your life that are going to have to go. If you're going to give yourself to some in-depth, significant study to know the truth, there's some other things you're going to have to say no to. And some of those things might even be hanging out with friends. Study. Get alone with God and know the Christian faith. Second, practical thing that you can do is just set heaven before you. Your true citizenship is in heaven. Continue to have a heavenly mindset. That is our citizenship. Eliminate the competition. Remember, I have nothing else that I desire besides thee on earth. So set heaven before you. Study, have that kind of a mindset. Be aware of and avoidance of competing demands. Even acceptable things like hobbies, athletics. And there's, I know God's given us all things richly to enjoy, but be careful. Don't be too set on the things of this life. Set heaven before you. First study, second is set heaven before you. Third is serve. Serve. In other words, love for Christ's people is going to be a great aid to continuing to cultivate a pure and simple devotion to Christ. Because Jesus loves his people, right? Adopt ministry as a mindset and as a way of life, not just something you do on Sunday or on Wednesday night. You exist as a full-time vocational Christian ambassador for Christ, no matter where you are, no matter what you do. Serve him. Serve the Lord. Love each other. Invest. Attend. Be in relationships. Have Christ-directed priorities. Be ambitious in serving, especially using your discretionary time and seek to deny and renounce yourself. Use your God-given talents as unto the Lord. Even Jesus, the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve, right? So serve. Study, set, serve, store up, number four. Store up treasure in heaven. Give as much as you can. On our budget at home, the subtitle is, How much of God's money shall we keep for ourselves? It's all belong to him, right? 
So store up treasure in heaven. And I'm not really just only talking about money here. I'm talking about whole of life as stewardship. The allocation of your resources, your spiritual giftedness. All the different commands and the, the, the encouragements to not grow weary, to show hospitality, to meet needs, to do good deeds, to be generous, to send it ahead, to maximize our eternal reward. Our treasure is there and our heart is also. All right, store it up. Number five, I like this one. Sing. We sing, sing a new song, learned a new song this morning. Listening is good. I'm not saying that that's bad, but, but joining in is better. And if people around you say, and you're, I don't, then do it by yourself somewhere. I don't care, but sing. Have a playlist. Sing some time-tested songs. Theological lyrics, not vain, superficial repeti- repetition. Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5, the synonyms of letting the Christ's word dwell in you richly or being filled with the Holy Spirit, they have the same result that you're going to be singing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. Sing. Sing in your closet. Sing in your car. Sing at home. Sing in devotions. Incorporate a hymnal or a songbook in your, in your private devotions. Sing. That will promote pure and simple devotion to Christ. And the last one is... I called it say no, but I know it's, you know, it's like, okay, you're stuck on alliteration. It's fasting, okay? Uh, I'm a proponent of this. I believe the Bible teaches this. Fasting is a great way to humble yourself, to identify more precisely sin, encumbrances in your life that you need to repent over. It helps maintain a tender conscience towards the Lord. And in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus even said that when the bridegroom goes away from the bride, they're going to fast then. The implication is is that fasting is going to become a regular habit and discipline in the lives of those who follow me. We hurt ourselves by forgetting this friend that the Lord has given us to help us in a pure pursue of pure and simple devotion to him is to say no to food and to fast. And set aside days of fasting. This summer will mark 40 years for me as a Christian. I got saved at age 19. I'm going to be turning 59. As I age, I can tell you that I have more reasons to grow tired, sour, disenfranchised, and cynical. I don't think I had a midlife crisis. Um, not sure about a post-mid-Christ life crisis, but I'm sure I've weathered more spiritual storms and endured more spiritual attacks that now I can identify as attacks. I've definitely had occasions of spiritual slump and endured them, and do even now, as I know many of you do, have lingering sorrow over people that we know and love who at one time said they had a pure and simple devotion to Christ, and indicated that was true, only to see them now be the willing victims, but also accomplices of Satan's cruel destruction. But here's some encouragement. Through 40 years of following Christ, I stand firmly today to tell you that the Lord has used those six words of pastoral counsel to help keep me and restore me and deepen a pure and simple devotion to Christ.
He is everything to me. Caleb, I like his example. Joshua chapter 14. You remember that Caleb and Joshua were the only two spies that gave a good report. Everybody else was afraid. We're not going to be able to take over. And so then therefore they were stuck wandering for 40 years or there in the desert. But this is what Caleb says. And I, and I, I just commend this to you in Joshua 14. Let this be your ambition as well. He says this, Nevertheless, my brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I followed the Lord my God fully. I love that. Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. This is amazing. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. And then he gets his inheritance within the the land that is conquest, and it's in verse 14. It says, Therefore, Hebron became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, until this day, because he followed the Lord God of Israel fully. Like Hosea says, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. Take advantage of the six reasons why this warning is given and implement those pieces of counsel and you will be able to be kept, restored, and even deepen a pure and simple devotion to Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you just uh, relentlessly pursue our hearts and that you are your own attraction and that you've given us words from people like the Apostle Paul so that we would be sobered, motivated, and encouraged in maintaining and pursuing a pure and simple devotion to you. Help us to do that. Thank you that we're part of a church family with others who are like-minded that also want to do that. That is our desire. Would you help us to set aside times to study? Would you grant us, Lord, that mindset of heaven being our ultimate home, to store up treasure there, to serve you as much as we possibly can in this life, to sing of your great worth and your great grace operative in our lives. And then when moments of dryness or occasions come, Lord, may we say no to food and fast to draw nearer to you. Help us to detect all the different ways that our enemy would seek to pollute and distract 
from a pure and simple devotion to you. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're coming again, that you know how to keep those who are yours, and that you love us no matter how many times we fail. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.